Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kosima Ali. Hi, I'm Hatem Aldawi, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I'm Priya Ahmed, and you're listening to Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I'm Bashar Malik, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Tanya Hardcastle. And you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hey, what's going on? It is Sly King, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, I'm Lydia Kirkland, and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, I'm Abigail Chewitt, and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, folks. Hope you're doing well. Welcome back to Bereavement Room Podcast. Wherever you are in the world, uh, you know, you can find me on social media. The handle is at Bereavement Room on Instagram and Twitter. And so we're nearing now what is almost the end of this final season. I want to just remind everyone, especially those that are tuning in for the first time, Bereavement Room is a British-born podcast. Uh, I started it about two years ago now after I experienced discrimination in therapeutic spaces. And so it's somewhat evolved, but unfortunately my dad died halfway through series one. And so it's evolved some more and it's gone down a trajectory that I never planned or imagined. It's been a roller coaster uh, and also a healing journey for me personally. And I'm very thankful to everyone that has reached out to me and to all of my former guests that have contributed to this very necessary conversation. As you all know, uh, Bereavement Room being a British-born podcast, I have spent a lot of time across the pond over in the States uh, in this final season. And so today I am in New Jersey. I'm joined by Lydia Kirkland. Lydia is a mother. She has a 19-year-old daughter and she works in a group home as a case manager for foster care children. She runs a not-for-profit in memory of her daughter, uh, where she helps um, families where their children have died with funeral costs and headstones. In addition to Brianna's memory, she's created a Instagram account called Life After Losing My Child and a YouTube channel um, titled The Same. She uses these platforms to support and connect with other grieving individuals. She enjoys the simple things in life, like music, reading, nature and art. And so Lydia has joined me in the room today to talk about Brianna and what life is like as a grieving mother. To everyone that's tuned in, this conversation could potentially be triggering. Uh, If you have to pause, um, do you pause the conversation and come back at a later date? Look after yourself. Well, as always, thank you so much for listening. I am your host, Kolsima Ali. Hi everyone, I'm thrilled to say I'm in New Jersey this week. I'm joined by today's guest who is in the room to talk to me about her daughter Brianna. It's Lydia Kirkland. Hi Lydia. Hello, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. It's a Easter Sunday break here all, all around the world. I'm in the UK, you're in, you're in New Jersey. How's your Easter break going? Um, it's going well. I'm I'm happy to have off today and be able to relax and reflect a little bit. So. Mm. Do you go to church or anything like that? Or um, 
No, but I have my own time with God and we talk often. So Yeah, I hear you on the same. Uh I don't go to mosque, but you know, I do my prayers at home on my beads. Um, so you're here to talk to me about your daughter um who passed away a few years ago uh you started a not-profit do you want to talk to me a little bit about your not-for-profit uh yes we have a non-profit it's called filling buckets for brianna and it started after brianna passed i found a poem she wrote and it talked about filling buckets and that nobody should have an empty bucket and everybody deserves to be filled and so we decided to fill buckets for Brianna and continue to pour into people's lives. So the thing that we do is uh, we raise money for different fundraisers and we help parents um, with funeral costs or headstone costs in the state of New Jersey. Oh, that's amazing. Really, really important work um, because funerals and headstones are very expensive. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I work in child bereavement and I'm often trying to find financial assistance um, for a lot of families that are not able to afford um, headstones or funerals because they they are costly, especially if you're from a low income household. Um, so that's really important work. Um, and before we sort of talk about your experiences and your reflections, um you know, tell us a bit more about you, like where you're from, where you grew up, your background. Okay, I am from New Jersey, um, and I'm a mom well, of two. One is in heaven, one's here. And um, I grew up in Lindenwald. I was born in Camden, and I grew up in Lindenwald. And my mom is from Puerto Rico, and my father is African-American. And um I kind of moved around in the state of New Jersey, and now I'm in Pine Hill. I work with foster care kids, and I do case management, and so I help children that are in the system. So much important work there with fostering um, and case management. What's that like for you? Um, It can be difficult. I have to make sure that I... I'm aware of um, my own biases and, and different things like that as far as, um, you know, when parents are kind of turning their back on their kids or giving them away or different situations where they just can't take care of them. Um, for me to be engaged and be an advocate for the child, but to also uh, be an advocate for the parent too and understand where they're coming from. You know, it's a little difficult after you lost a child to feel like other people are just giving their kids away, but um, to kind of truly understand the whole picture and not, you know, be so quick to assume. Mm. Yeah, that's really important Um, because everyone has their experience of the world. We all experience it in different ways. Um, but it sounds like an amazing job that you're you're doing, a very important job. Um, and do you enjoy it? Is it something that's close to your heart? Yes, yes, I, I definitely enjoy it. And, you know, I get excited when I see starting to believe in themselves and reach their highest potential and really do well. And then, you know, when kids don't be really who they are, um, just having the the 
privilege, I guess, to be able to help them um, take off the scales off their eyes and be able to see really like who they are and who they were created to be. It's, it's a great experience. Mm-hmm. And um, are a lot of these children um, that are going into foster care, are a lot of them from minority ethnic backgrounds or? Um, we have various you know, kids that come to us. So actually the majority that I've seen in my program um, have been Caucasian. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, Is that sort of like the postcode, the demographic or of the area or? Um, Well, we get everyone from the state of New Jersey that come to us. So. Uh, Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I hear you. Well, it sounds like amazing work, really important work. And um, I know that you and I connected through the amazingness that is social media. Uh, <laughs> and I noticed you, I think you listen to my podcast, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do listening to grief podcasts help you? Uh, do you listen to a lot of them or? Um, I have listened to various podcasts and they do help. And um I actually enjoyed the one you had with Jermaine and we talked about it briefly, but, you know, just coming from African-American perspective and it it does help. It helps to be able to connect with other people um, that have had the experience of grief and so that you don't feel alone, you know, and it's hard to describe to people that haven't experienced grief, um, because they don't know what it's like. And it's also difficult for you to put in words because you're trying to figure out and navigate through the grief. So yeah, it's definitely helpful to listen to different podcasts on grief. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I love podcasting, but I also love listening to grief (laughs) podcasts and talking with you folks. Um, Because, you know, when I started Bereavement Room, it wasn't a very diverse space. Um, and I sort of struggled with that and I you know went through certain discriminations in in certain therapeutic spaces that I entered and it just felt like in the UK um, our white counterparts tend to talk a lot more about grief and death and dying and and bereavement Um, (laughs) so to create something like Bereavement Room has been a really special journey because it it brought so many people across the diaspora right together but it's kind of proved that we're not all the same and we don't experience things the same way and how we access the system as well you know we we all have different experiences of how we access the system too so it was just nice to like bring everyone into the room together even though we're not all the same but we're from across the diaspora like whether it's you know African America um you know, across the UK, South Asian, Latinx, there was quite a array of guests. So I'm really happy that you've, you know, you've enjoyed listening to grief podcasts and you do find it helpful. I definitely resonate with that. I, It's really nice to just hear people's experiences um, because it is isolating, as you say. Yeah, it was good even to hear your experience and how difficult it was Um for you and just being a female, you know, and trying to be there at your uh, father's passing and the burial and different things. So it was just, um, it's just insightful to see different cultures and what you experience. So. 
Yeah, that's quite common <laughs> for a lot of us women in our culture. Not everyone, but yeah, not being at the burial. And that's a whole other thing. Like I talked so much about that in series one. I completely exhausted it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, I've, I guess I'll never really know what that's like to take, really take part in a funeral procession. But um, hey ho, here we are talking about yeah. these things, which is important. It is, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, talk to me a little bit about your daughter, Brianna. What, what was she like? Um, she was an excited child. She was happy about everything, you know, and uh, like she used to pick flowers and bring them to my mom and my mom would get annoyed because their garden would be all tore up. Oh, <laughs> But she just was excited about life. She would tell me fun facts about flamingos. And, you know, she was the kind of kid that you would take her to the grocery store. She would talk to the strangers in a grocery store. She just had like an innocence about her and um, very, very smart. She was like a brilliant child. So she was reading early. She walked early. She just was she was a great kid. It's like so much to say and not enough words. <laughs> um, she was quirky. <laughs> so she um, she did have friends and, and even at the funeral, they stood up and they talked about her. She was 13 when she passed away. And so they talked about her. And it was funny because um, even the bully, she was she was actually being bullied in school and the bully um, stood up and had talked about her and she was a peacemaker and she was always trying to see the best in people. And so I remember um, we saw the bully at the um, bus stop and my mom was so upset or whatever. (laughs) And she was like, Oh, you know, just getting really upset about seeing this, this girl that was picking on Brianna. And Brianna said, you know, grandma, you got to be nice to everybody, even those that aren't nice to you. Oh, wow. You know, and yeah, she was just trying to bring a perspective that was well beyond her time. You know what I mean? Of just like understanding that no matter how people treat you, like you still, it's your intentions and your behavior that matters most, you know? And so I don't know. She, she got along with all the teachers knew her. Everybody, you know, was there at the funeral. The the superintendent came, all the teachers came. Um, There was a senator that met her that I guess visited the school. He came to the funeral. So she was really like a, I guess, a bubbly kid and a well-known kid amongst everyone, you know. She sounds really lovely, really, really lovely. And you know, her death was untimely. And I, you know, for a mother to lose a daughter, I, you know, working in child bereavement, um, I hear a lot of mothers that talk about their children that have died, you know, before them. Um, Mm -hmm. What is that like for you? I mean, are you able to sort of go back in time a little bit? So she had um, broken her foot while she was playing basketball at school. And so they called me and they said, um, come pick her up. Now I was at work 
And my boss was kind of giving me a hard time and said, well, you're the only one on shift and you got to figure it out. So anyway, um, so I ended up picking up my sister to took her to the emergency room and stayed with her until I got out of work. So fast forward two weeks later, um, I'm looking at her and I'm like, you don't look good. And she had lost a lot of weight. Um, and I was like, you look really skinny, like something's wrong. And so I took her to the emergency room and while we were there, um, she was saying she didn't feel well. She couldn't keep down fluid and, you know, different things that she was complaining about that she wasn't able to keep down food and stuff. And so, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and so, um, while we were there, she used the bathroom twice. I asked the nurse, I said, something's wrong. I don't know what, but, uh, if you could give her an IV, if you could do something for her, I don't know what's wrong. So they gave her, um, the nurse said, okay, I'll give her the IV. And then he said, well, let me ask the doctor. He went and asked the doctor. He came back. He said, oh, no, the doctor says she doesn't need an IV or anything. We're going to give her Zofran for nausea. And if she could keep down this popsicle and this fluid, she should be okay. So the doctor comes in and he says, well, I believe she has a virus. I've been seeing it go around and, you know, and I'm like, okay, you know, I don't know. But anyway, so then he says, just take her home, keep her full of fluids. She'll be okay. So I took her home and um, gave her apple juice and different fluids and then uh, her older cousin came over to spend the night and stuff. And so I went out with my friend um, for a few hours. And because I'm thinking she just has a virus. Kids have that. You know, we've been through this before. She's with her cousin and her sister. She'll be okay. So then the older cousin calls me and says, you know, something's wrong. I don't know. You know, come home. So I ended up coming home and I see her and she's laying down and I had picked up my boyfriend and I said to him, I said, I think um, I want to take her back to the hospital. I don't know. You know, and he says, well, don't take her back because they're just going to tell you the same thing. You're going to wait in the emergency room for hours and then they're going to tell you the same thing to just keep her hydrated. So there's no point in taking her back. So then the next morning, um, Gosh. I jump out of bed and I, before I even looked in her room, a flash um, came into my brain. I don't know how to explain it, but a picture came into my brain um, that she was gone. And so I opened her bedroom door and she lay on the floor and, and she was gone and I tried to do um, CPR on her and I called 911 and all that. And um, so, yeah, so that's basically what happened is uh, the next day she passed away. And so when the medical examiner, and this is why I said the thing about the broken leg. So the medical examiner 
he told me that the doctor dropped the ball and that while she was at the ER, if he would have did um, a urine dip that would have taken less than five minutes and cost less than $2. My daughter would still be, she would still be here, you know? So it's just, uh, it's a difficult thing. And um, so it turned out that she had type one diabetes. It wasn't a virus. And um, with the urine dip, he would have been able to see um, that her levels were off and she may still be here. And also I went to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation afterwards, and they told me that usually it's set off um, by a broken bone or um, a virus. So that's why when she broke her foot, then it all started making sense, you know, like how it got triggered and how it started. But I never even knew that she had type one. Like I just never knew. And so, yeah. So I I didn't even know that about type one diabetes. I thought it was to do with sugar, glucose diet. I didn't know it could be related to broken, a broken bone. Um, cause I'm actually a diabetic, uh, oh. I've, I, I've type two. So I'm always really interested in diabetes and how it always works and how they measure things and how they send you for tests. Cause I'm sure you've heard on the podcast, like I am very suspicious of healthcare services in right. the, of the UK and I don't really like how they you know, they, my mum could have lived, you know, my younger bro- brother definitely could have lived and my dad's death was completely random and I know they killed him. So it's like, I'm I, the thing with healthcare, it's so, it's so complex, but that's awful. So that doctor could have picked up on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he could have. And, and, and because she had used the bathroom twice while she was there, which, you know, frequent urination is, you know, a symptom of diabetes. And, and the reason why I went to that specific hospital was because they had joined um, with like child specialists and stuff. And so I don't want to like say the name. I don't know how much I could get in trouble, but. Oh yeah, <laughs> but let's they, not say a name. You know, yeah. yeah, but the, they had joined with, um, different child specialists. And that's why I took her there. And so the doctor that worked on her, he was actually like the chief of the emergency room. And yeah. So, and from what I hear, um, my daughter isn't the only one that has, you know, had, uh, has not made it under his care, but that's just hearsay. So I don't know, but. Um, and do you think it's just because he's incompetent or negligent or do you think there's racism involved because uh, this is something I always try to unpack on the podcast and I I know with the healthcare negligence in my family racism was definitely involved right in certain certain decision making is is that something you've delved into or it's not relevant um well I mean my mom is real adamant that if it if Brianna was a Caucasian child, that she would still be here. I can't really say that. Um, I try to not 
think about that. I don't know if it's like me trying to protect myself or whatever, but I try not to um, get hung up in that aspect of it because the results are the same. She's not here, you know? So for me, that would just cause me more hate and more anger to like maybe acknowledge that. That's why I'm like, maybe I'm trying to protect myself, but I don't know if that's just my mom's um, perspective because of what her experiences have been in life or whether there's some truth to it. Like, I don't know. And I haven't um, dove into the other cases that um, he has had with negligence or malpractice or anything to see if there's a pattern of minorities that are affected. Like, I just haven't gone that far. Mm. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, speaking to a lot of my guests, that's something, you know, that can open up another can of worms and it, it does make you angry. I'm very angry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. I get through my days mostly angry. Um, <laughs> and I think doing the podcast really helps and levels out because talking is healing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, gosh, that is just, that is just, I you know it's just inconceivable just awful and so you know what were the coming days like did you have good support around you with the funeral what was that like um I did have support around me with the funeral um the community actually came together and they donated money we didn't have to pay for anything from the funeral all the way to our headstone everything was paid for and that was from the community, the schools collecting money um, from the police department, from like everybody in our community. And I live in uh, Pine Hill, New Jersey, and everybody in our community came together and like gave and supported. Um, yeah, it was it was still I'm just thinking about when we were preparing for the funeral. Um, I remember being at the funeral home and they were given me pictures of caskets to pick out and stuff like that. And I said to my mom, like, I don't know why we're here. Like, I, I don't know. I was in such shock, I guess. And I just was like, I don't understand why we're here. And she was like, cause Brianna passed away. And I was like, no, she's home. Like, I don't, like I was in such denial and shock. I don't know how to even explain it. And, um, she was like, no, like she died. And I just immediately just fell to pieces. Like I, I You're traumatized. Yeah, I was. It was so traumatic. And I did have um, my family there. My sister was there. My mom was there. My boyfriend at the time was there with his mom. My cousin was there, another friend. So I did have a good support system um, going like into the funeral. Um, okay, I see. Uh, and did that kind of fall off after the funeral? Yes. Oh, why does <laughs> that always happen? Yeah, so I think, uh, I don't know, but yeah, so going into the funeral, I had support after the funeral um, and still to this day, not so much. People don't mention her. They don't say her name. It's like she never existed. And well, that's not very compassionate. Yeah. 
I'm trying to figure out how to um, to deal with that. But I also know that they lost a grandchild. They lost a niece. They're dealing with grief in their own way. Mm-hmm. And so I do a lot of um, trying to understand other people's perspective, because if I don't, then then I'll just, you know, I just will be, I'll, I'll be angry. And, and I know, like, I keep saying it and it's part of it, but there's certain um, parts that I don't have to take on if, if I'm willing to understand and not just be in a place of anger and feeling like, you know, well, you know, if anybody should be mad, I lost my kid, you know, forget that you lost your grandchild or your niece or whoever she was to you. She was my child. I don't want to have that chip on my shoulder because it is still a great loss to them. You know, so it's like maybe they just don't know how to grieve or cope or people feel like if you talk about it, you're going to make the mom upset. But I try to explain to my family, there's nothing you could say that would trigger me. I mean, me opening my eyes and seeing her not here is enough. You know, like exactly. <laughs> Exactly. They're not going to make it worse. It's already yeah, worse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. But. No, I think all the listeners and former guests will resonate with that. It's really strange how things just fall off in the aftermath and people don't really, I think it's a lack of grief awareness or they are mm. g- going through their own grief of that relationship that they had. Um, and I mm. think he- human beings are fallible in general anyway. Uh, so it's a difficult one and I mean what was the funeral day itself like you you got lots of support you know how I mean funerals aren't great anyway but yeah I um kind of can it's like bits and pieces so I don't remember everything Mm. but I I do remember getting dressed for the funeral and I stood in the mirror and I said this is the outfit that I'm wearing to bury my child. And I just, and I said it out loud as I was standing there and I just was still in just such shock. I just, it was like so surreal. I just was like, it felt like a dream. And, you know, but, um, so when we got there, we wore green, I wore green and my surviving daughter, she wore green and their father who like, I haven't been with him in years, but he came up from Florida because he lives in Florida. And surprisingly, I don't know if somebody told him what our colors were, but he wore like a green vest with his suit or whatever. And I was like, man, like, so we wore green because that was her favorite color. Okay. Yeah. And so um, while I was there, I actually uh, fainted. And then they had to give me oxygen um, because the police department came to her funeral. And so I I didn't eat or sleep for like a week or so. However, from the time she passed till the funeral, um, I was barely sleeping. I, I wouldn't eat. I just didn't have an appetite. And so I ended up, I guess, it was too much at the funeral and I fainted and then they put me on oxygen and laid me across the chairs that were there. And then uh, somewhat um, 
you know, remember some parts of who was there and who wasn't. And then um, I wrote a letter to Brianna and I couldn't read it, but um, my best friend read it for me. And I put together a, um, a bunch of pictures. And so we showed it on the slides, um, the slideshow. And so it was all pictures from when she was a baby all the way up. And um, I put her favorite songs in the background. And so that, that was. Yeah. How traumatic. So traumatic. So have you had any support? Like, I know you talked about your family and that's kind of, you know, and your friends and other people that may have fallen off or mm-hmm. uh, and not as much support as the beginning, um, which strangely is really common uh, across everywhere it seems the support falls off after the funeral um yeah. which is the aftercare is really important because now mm-hmm. you have to live with it right right you've got to live with this new normal if we want to use that phrase um, I hate that phrase. <laughs> yes so do I. I they've been using it in coronavirus so much <sighs> whatever it is but you know you have to live with this now this reality that your daughter is no longer here and so did you get therapy like do you see a counselor like what sustains you um yeah so I did see actually five I want to say five therapists wow okay (laughs) yeah well because my first therapist ended up getting pregnant so they gave me a, yeah, a replacement therapist. And then she ended up um, just after our first session going MIA and they didn't know what happened to her. And I don't know. And then, <laughs> so then I saw another therapist and she was in her twenties and lived home with her parents and um, didn't have any children. And I just felt like I couldn't connect. So I signed up for another therapist and she was an African-American woman and she had lost her son. And so I felt like finally I'm finding someone I can connect with. And so um, they ended up switching her to a different office and it was days that I couldn't make it. And so then I ended up getting another therapist um, actually in 2020. And then my insurance, medical insurance ran out January 31st. And so she said, you know, you don't have any, your insurance is over. You need to, you know, get some new insurance or whatever. And so, so I don't have anybody now, but I did up until January. And um, I don't even know if they were helpful. (laughs) I don't know. I was still dealing with so much that I'm not sure. I mean, I guess they were helpful to kind of talk about it at times. I'm sure I'm not where I was in the first year um, that my daughter passed away, but grief is so complicated. And when you think you may have come out of um, one of the stages, you're knocked back into it. So I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, I feel like cancelling is a, well, cancelling or the access is one thing. Then it's like, you know, who are you allocated? Um, Do you get, I mean, do you get to choose? I know that you said you had insurance. So through insurance, do you get to choose or they just allocate you to a person? Um, Well, you have to choose someone that's in your um, 
that, that takes your insurance. But I'm sure that if I were to try to research, um, you know, specifically African-Americans that take, well, at the time I was had Medicaid, which was through the state, um, I'm sure I could have found one, but the majority were Caucasian women. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it was... <laughs> It was a little difficult, you know, to find somebody that was on on my page, I guess, as far as understanding my culture and background and all. Yeah, we've talked a lot about Caucasian therapists on the podcast. Um, I think, you know, I, I hosted a room actually on Clubhouse with Jermaine and Ben from Thinking Out Loud. Mm-hmm. pod um and it was does the race and identity of your therapist matter we kind of concluded in the end yes and no but it really depends on the context and and right. everyone in the room was from black or uh south asian from the sub-indian continent in the room uh or latin and <laughs> i think every story that people shared or experienced was that yes it does but it it depends on the context of your where you are and uh your experience and it was it's just interesting to hear people's experiences of therapy in terms of you know does the identity matter Um, because I've always argued that it does um but yeah, I feel like therapy, you know, therapy isn't always for everyone. There's other means that can sustain people. We, we've heard people come on here and talk about exercising and art and mm-hmm. r- running and walking or just going to work and keeping busy or spend, right. spending time with loved ones. But um, I think having your own dedicated talking space or therapy space uh I think that's important because it's your dedicated time for you. Mm-hmm. So do you think, do you think you'll go back to it at some point or you're just not, you're okay to just kind of do something else? Um, I mean, I've done a, a few things. I've done the therapy, but I've also done um, support groups for grieving parents that mm-hmm. didn't me. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, just because, I mean, it allowed me to connect to other parents. And so that was like really helpful. But at the same time, um, there were parents there that have lost children 30, 40 years ago, and they were still crying like it was yesterday. And so for me, I'm not saying like, it's a bad thing. I'll probably be crying in 30, 40 years. But for me, it didn't give me much hope that it was going to get better. It just felt like, man, if I got to still feel like this in 30, 40 years, like, you know, I don't know if it's like if I'm explaining. Yeah, no, I hear you. <laughs> or, if it, or if it sounds bad to say that. I guess if you've just been freshly bereaved, it wouldn't fill you with confidence that right. you might be like this when you're 60, 70. Um, right. But you never stop grieving. You never stop grieving. Right. Uh, so what what do you think would sustain you um so right now I kind of just do my own thing (laughs) I um I mean I pick a little bit of everything and so I do uh meditate I also um 
have been working through this workbook and it's a self-compassionate workbook. And so it kind of um, helps me with like the negative thoughts that I keep um, surrounding grief. You know, you always go through the woulda, shoulda, coulda. If I just did this, they would still be here. So kind of dealing with the guilt. Um, and then I try to exercise. I try, like I try everything, honestly. I mean, whatever. <laughs> whatever is going to help. So if I find that it's helping, I'll keep doing it. If I notice that it's not um, as helpful, like the support group, then I'll kind of shy away and, and try to figure out something else. Mm. Yeah. I think it's really interesting about the support groups though. Um, I think I've heard on it from another parent as well, that uh, that wasn't brilliant. Uh, um but different things work for different people, you know, and right. you you know yourself better than anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to do what works for you. Um, gosh, you've been through so much. Uh, I mean, what, like, if you had a message for the community, you know, particularly for mothers that have been bereaved of a child, any kind of words of solace or comfort, anything you'd want people to know? Um. Yeah, I think that that the agony and the the wound that's so fresh and so open um, that is the pain isn't always going to be so readily available. It's not going to be at the surface all the time. Um, that there is hope, and I guess some advice would be to walk with grief, to not try to run from it, bury it, drink it away, work it away. You know, all of the avenues we try to um, escape grief. But if you take time to really just walk with grief, uh, that you'll find a lot of lessons and you'll learn a lot and you'll be better for it. That's very beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. And I know we talked about this offline about black mental health, and I know it's a really loaded question. (laughs) Um, So if you do want to reflect on anything that you want to say about mental health services for the black community, you know, do you think it's adequate? Does it need more funding? Um, Does it need an overhaul? What, you know, whatever your reflection is, or you can just say that it is really loaded because I know it is a loaded question. It, it is a loaded question, but I think that um, definitely need more uh, minority therapists. I think that it, it is important, um, like you were saying, to connect with those that understand your culture. And, you know, that's not just limited to, of course, African-Americans. It's, it's all minorities to just understand that it's difficult for us to be open um, you know, especially if we have like a, a Caucasian therapist or whatever, to be open to trust um, therapists and doctors and, you know, um, that our parents um, have been through a time. I could, I'll i speak to like my mom has been through the 50s. And so during her time of, um, you know, being denied service. Because she was, okay. I, yeah, because she was not Caucasian. I'm sorry. So- 
Did she um did she live through Jim Crow? She was living through she that was, time. She was born in uh, 1950. Okay. And, yeah, and so but she was like my mom was with the Black Panther. She was an activist. She was, you know, always trying to fight for um equality and justice and and so just my point is a lot of times um she was done wrong and so she had to kind of bite the bullet on a lot of things um and struggling and suffering was just a part of life and so maybe she wasn't able to always teach me you know that like struggling and suffering didn't have to be a part of life you know we could talk about things more we could be open and be vulnerable and not feel like we're automatically going to be taken advantage of. But at the same time, in the world that that I've experienced, when you are open and honest about certain things, you, you do become labeled. And I don't know. It's just, yeah. So kind of getting back to, there's a lot with mental health and with being able to be open and talk and be transparent. Um, in society when it's not always been so nice to you. It's, it's difficult to trust and build that relationship. I think it would be a little easier if you were dealing with therapists that have possibly experienced similar things. Mm-hmm. Mm, if, if they've grown <laughs> up with discrimination, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, and so I want to ask you, because you touched on vulnerability there, uh, do you think vulnerability is a weakness? Do you think it's a strength? I definitely think it's a strength. I think that um, anybody could walk around and act like everything's okay. You know, and people wear masks every day and they wear various masks. I think it takes strength to be vulnerable and to be open. And when you are, it allows others to be transparent and feel like there's a safe place for them to be vulnerable as well. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, you know, learning to be vulnerable is is key. It's definitely something that I have only just starting to learn. But it's, mm-hmm. only, it's only because in the past I was told that it was a weakness and I wasn't, if I ever showed a sign of vulnerability, it was just, you know, you're shunned. Right. <laughs> you're not allowed in the room. Um, and I think bereavement room has definitely helped, not just me, but I think everyone have a, a voice to kind of, share their vulnerability and that it's not something to be ashamed of right yeah Yeah. I think it's a cultural thing too I mean we're we're all taught to that's basically what I was I guess getting at it's like you're taught like like no to be strong to put on a you know a a guarded face or whatever it is um Mm. but that's probably because you're in survival mode all the time exactly (laughs) the generational trauma gets passed down and it's like you have to be in survival mode you have to be strong you can't show any weakness otherwise they're going to screw you over um and that happens a lot in the workplace but i won't go down Mm -hmm. that rabbit hole right now oh i know i know i could talk about that you know i feel like the workplace needs to be a whole another podcast um because what happens in the workplace is awful but yeah. yeah I've really enjoyed speaking with you today and I 
I know these things aren't easy and you don't know me, I'm a stranger. Um, <laughs> you just know me as the Bereavement Room podcaster. But it was a real privilege to hear about Brianna um, and what she was like. And so you created a YouTube channel. Uh, do you want to talk to me a little bit about your YouTube channel, or where to find it and your uh, not-for-profit website? Uh, so my YouTube channel is Life, well, the, it's titled Life After Losing My Child. And um, I just kind of talk about my own experiences and I hope to create a place where, you know, those that have lost a child can come find hope. We can inspire one another, feel free to leave comments so that we could connect with one another. Um, it's just a place for me, kind of like with you with the bereavement room to be able to heal myself. You know, I'm not like so far gone or like, you know, in this whole um area of acceptance that like I've arrived or anything. So it's just a place for me to connect with other people. And then um, the foundation is org is where you can find us and feel free to donate. We help parents. Uh, once again, they have lost children with funeral costs and headstones. And, you know, we go to memorials and um, just support any way that we can. Wonderful. Amazing. So to everyone that's listening, if you can make a donation, please do. I'll uh, link all of the sites and YouTube channel in the episode show notes so that you can reach Lydia. Um, this now takes us to the gratefulness challenge. Thank you to everyone that's listening. I'm going to go first, Lydia, and give you a bit of time to think about it. Um, so the gratefulness is just one thing that we're grateful for in the here and now. Of course, it's not to find a silver lining or, or gloss over any pain. Uh, you can equally say what you're not grateful for. But um, I I personally, like gratitude has always been a big part of my healing journey, I guess you could say. Um, so what I'm grateful for today is a, it's an Easter Sunday. God has blessed us with another day. Um, here in the UK, it's really, really beautiful. Uh, it's very sunny. And I know that sounds a bit, you know, British people love to talk about the weather because we, we're blessed with grey clouds. So <laughs> when the sun, the sun comes out, it's quite nice. And so I'm grateful that I'm going to be able to go for a walk after this. But just really feel privileged to be able to sit here and connect with people from all over the world. You know, in this season three, I've had more people from America as guests you know the other week I was in California today I'm in New Jersey a couple of weeks back I was in Alabama I'm soon to be in New York I can do that all from you know from the UK in London and I feel really blessed to be able to invite people here pass the mic and share as little and as much as you want of your journey and uh, I'm grateful to God for that and I'm grateful for you for appearing as a guest on my podcast thank you so much Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, I am grateful to be on the bereavement room. I mean, really, I, I feel like it's such an honor to have any moment to talk about my daughter. So, I mean, I'm just thankful and grateful that you asked me to be a part of this. Um, I'm also grateful. I know you talk about in the here and now, but I mean, I'm grateful that there's a spiritual realm. I had to get all deep, but really, like, I'm grateful that I will be able to see my child again. I'm grateful um, 
for God. I'm grateful for the sun. I'm grateful even through the grief journey that I've gained a new perspective and that I understand that money and all the stuff this world has to offer doesn't mean much, um, but that the best things in life are free. You know, love, family, uh, kindness, friendship, like those things matter. And, and I'm grateful to have the perspective to understand that, you know, early in life. Um, and so I'm just grateful for everything, really. Like, I'm, I'm grateful to be alive. Well, that was Lydia Kirkland. She joined me in the room to talk about her daughter, Brianna. I'm going to be very transparent with you. When I stopped recording, we both had a good cry and put the world to rights. Lydia is actually a regular listener and she's shown me so much love and support, particularly for my well-being in the past year, which I've really appreciated. And that's what makes Bereavement Room great because it's not about going for the big influencers or people that already have a platform. It's about everyday people like you and me and Lydia, where we are underrepresented and we don't always get to share our experiences and what we've endured. Let's wish her a lot of love a lot a lot of love honestly she's been an absolute stellar guest um these conversations are never easy to facilitate and i found this one particularly hard but i can only imagine what it was like for lydia let's wish her love and so that's all i've got for you folks until next time take good care of yourself i am your host kosima ali